beautifully in over my head. Well put. Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate that. And thank you, worship team, for leading us faithfully Sunday after Sunday into the Lord's presence. We appreciate that. Good job, Shane. Just want to make sure you receive that encouragement while you're up there pushing buttons. Um, Just want to let you know that was, I guess, four Sundays from this Sunday or next Sunday, four or five Sundays from now, we will have our Easter service. It will be our traditional Easter service. I'm assuming no Sunday school and um, start at 1030, I guess. And uh, we will also flower the cross as traditional. So we want to pray that spring continues to spring. So we have plenty of flowers to put on the cross. And um, going to do something a little different this year regarding the Easter breakfast. Uh, traditionally, Dwight has spearheaded that, and he has generously decided to step aside and let somebody else spearhead that this year. That's what I mean by we're going to do something a little different, because I really don't know what that different looks like yet. But there's somebody out there that does know what that different looks like. So I'd appreciate it um, if you would... Take it to the Lord in prayer. We do need somebody to spearhead the breakfast this year. There's usually it's pretty well attended. It's at least 50, 60 people that come out, and it's a grand time. So um, just ask the Lord, Lord, is this the way that you would have me serve this body? Is this the way you would have me serve you? And when God uh, informs you that answer, just let me know. It's that easy. And then we, we just press on and have breakfast for Easter morning. Also, um, this as a matter of praise. I ha- we also will have our Monday Thursday service, and we have enough music. So thank you for those that volunteered to do music for that. We have some really good hymns and songs lined up that will just go right alongside with the theme. So I appreciate you guys rising to the occasion. So we have enough music for that. But we're continuing our study in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus has his followers around him and he begins to preach an official sermon. And what is on his heart is this idea of happiness and being blessed. And Jesus wants his disciples, his followers to be blessed. Although the content of this sermon is not always what we would think of as a blessing. It is somewhat paradoxical because he begins his sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And it is this poor spirit in relation to God that we need in order to experience the blessedness of God. And the blessedness or the happiness that Jesus wants his disciples to have is the very experience of blessedness that God obtains or contains himself. God is in a constant condition of blessedness. If you ask him any time, how are you, God? He will be blessed. He cannot be in an unblessed state. And so Jesus wants his followers to experience this same kind of inward happiness. And so he is preaching a sermon about it. And he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And a poor spirit, as we have been taught, is a spirit that realizes intellectually and experientially knows That in relation to God, it is absolutely bankrupt. It's when we look at our spirits and we see there is nothing there to offer God, to give God, to anything of merit, anything of worth. As a matter of fact, 
the spirit is so impoverished that the word used there is beggarly. It's those that cower back and want to stay in the shadows regarding the presence of God because they realize how much they lack. And so all that impoverished impoverished spirit can really do is just ask for mercy and grace. That's it. There's no exchange. It's just, please, Lord, may I have mercy. Will you have mercy on me? This morning's teaching is another paradox. And these two kind of go in hand, as well as all of the Beatitudes really go hand in hand. They are building blocks. Jesus says the only people who are truly happy or blessed is those who... Mourn. Verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is this kind of mourning that really is the emotional toll that it takes on us when we realize how impoverished our spirit is. It's coming to grips with the utter bankruptcy of our hearts. It's, it's the true grief, it's the true sadness. Over what we find when we will take the time to look deeply into our hearts. Take the time to look at who we really are. And what we are really about. Chuck Colson. I'm going to use a story by Chuck Colson. Because it serves as just a great illustration. And it's a true experience. It's a great illustration of what kind of mourning we're talking about here. And Charles Colson tells a story um, about a segment that he watched on 60 Minutes in the year 1983. And Mike Wallace, who since then deceased, though I think his son is still in the news business, but Mike Wallace was doing this interview on 60 Minutes. He was interviewing an Auschwitz survivor by the name of Yahael. Diner. And this man was a principal witness at the the Nuremberg War Crimes Trial after the war. And he survived two years in the prison at Auschwitz. Now, one of the men that was on trial was Adolf Eichmann. And if you've studied this at all, you won't know that name. He was also, he was a, um, a German Nazi. And he was one of the main organizers of the Holocaust. So whenever you hear the, the word Holocaust, this man was one of the primary men that was responsible for the absolute heinous atrocities that are associated with the Holocaust. This is what's on trial. These kinds of crimes were... Um, Millions of people died. You had gypsies die. You have Poles that were slaughtered. But uh, over all of them were the Jews. I believe about six million Jews were brought in, and they were they were gathered together like cattle. They were placed on cattle on um, cargo cars on the train. They were brought to this prison cl- uh, camp in Auschwitz, and they were literally slaughtered at their peaks. About 4,000 a day at this prison camp were, were killed. And I'm sure you are familiar with how it takes place. But basically, you get off the train and you're separated into different groups of people, male and female. And 
mothers with one with young children. You're asked to remove all your clothes, put all your valuables in a in a different line. And then under the uh, promise that you will be given a shower, you go into this large chamber in which as many people as they can fit at one time. And then they bolt the doors closed. And by the way, it did look deceptively like there were shower heads and handles that you could turn to get water. Only in this case, there was a man up on the roof and he would drop gaseous pellets into this chamber, close it down, bolt it down. And it said uh, it didn't take any more than five minutes for everybody in that chamber to have perished. Then they aired it out. And 30 minutes after that, they brought in a fresh crop at their peak, about 4000 people. It's this it's this kind of thinking in that. And there were terrible atrocities that took place. This man is on trial and this Jewish man was a witness of this and he survived two years. Now, this was in 1983. There was an interview. The actual trial took place around 1961. And so Mike Wallace is interviewing him. And during this interview, he shows a film clip of the 1961 trial. He shows it to Denor. And in this clip, it shows that Denor. He enters the courtroom and he comes face to face with Adolf Eichmann. Face to face for the first time since his imprisonment, almost 20 years earlier. And, and it's very obvious as soon as he enters into the courtroom and as soon as he, he, he catches this man's eye and looks him in the face, he is noticeably shaken. He is noticeably stirred. And he can barely go forward and he just stammers. And then he literally faints. I looked this up on Wikipedia and their commentary on it was after a rambling opening statement in which Denner described Auschwitz as the planet of the ashes. He collapsed and gave no further testimony. That was their View. Chuck Colson watched this same thing, and here's his take. He said, nurse stopped cold. He began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted while the presiding judge pounded his gavel to try to maintain order in the courtroom. So over 20 years later, he's being interviewed, and Mike Wallace gets to ask this man the big question, the big question that's on everybody's mind. What happened to you? What, what happened to you? What were those tears about? How did you lose control? Why? And what put you on the ground? What happened at that moment? Was Denur overcome by hatred? Was he so filled with hatred that he just could not take another step and it put him on the ground? Was he so filled with fear, reliving the torment and the trials that he experienced? Was that what caused him to just grow limp and pass out? It was none of those. As Denor answered Wallace's question. said all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer. That had sent so many to their death. He said, Eichmann was just an ordinary man. 
Now I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am a man like he. Can you imagine? He comes face to face with this person that performed such atrocities. And then he can't go on any farther. Because he looks at him and he sees just a man. And he realizes that I'm just a man as well. So how does Mike Wallace summarize this interview? Very profound words. Mike Wallace says, Eichmann is in all of us. A horrifying statement that captures the truth of what it is that Jesus wants us to be in mourning about. What it is that Jesus wants us to be in mourning over because since the fall, we have sin, not just potential sin, not just conceivable or possible sin, but we have sin in us, all of us. Colson followed his penetrating observation with this question. Why is it that today sin is so seldom written of or preached about? And the answer is in Deneur's dramatic collapse. For truly to confront the sin within us is a devastating experience. If pastors preached on sin, says Colson, many people would flee their church and their pews never to return. But the fact of the matter is that every man needs this kind of encounter with his soul and with his sin. And so it is to this end that Jesus offers us graciously this second beatitude. And he teaches his disciples something about it. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It shows the necessity of facing one's sin. Pastor Kent Hughes says the Beatitudes are not the gospel because they do not explicitly explain Christ's atoning death and resurrection and how one may receive him. But they are preparatory for the gospel. The Beatitudes are preparatory in the sense that they slay us so that we may live. They hold us up against God's standards for the kingdom so that we can see our need and fly to him. Mourning. <clears throat> Blessed are those who mourn. There are nine Greek words just for the one word mourning because it's very complex. There's a lot of different things that take place when one mourns. There's a lot of different reasons and shades. It's, but let me just tell you what we're not talking about in this beatitude. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the grim. Blessed are the, the cheerless. Those who are not happy, the gloomy Christians, 
or people that shuffle through life and can't see any good thing out of it. Every day is a bad day. And those that are miserable because of their outlook and just maybe hope God will come and cheer them up some kind of way. He's not talking about that person who might be deeply troubled or depressed looking for a pick me up. He's not talking about those that mourn over general difficulties of life, though. We have difficulties of life. They are absolutely real. And Jesus addresses difficulties of life many places in Holy Scripture. There's plenty of reason for us to grieve over the things that happen to us and others in this life. Our story, man's story, man's history is a history of brokenness. It's a history of tears. And so, yes, our lives are filled with Many sorrows. We all have our own stories of sorrow. We all have our own times of tears. And it will remain that way. Ups and downs. Joys and sorrows until the Lord returns. And he even warns us that it will intensify before the Lord returns. Tears are a part of life. You know that. I know that. We have our story We have our grief. One thing that Lisa and I learned in our time of grief, when our soul, when our our Joel passed away, he was in the hospital. He was in NICU for two months. And we were grief stricken over this whole ordeal of a infant in need and felt very helpless outside of the grace of God and prayer. And. Another baby, another infant would come into the NICU and you would see parents grieving over that infant. And we would think, what wonder what's the matter with that child? We would ask and it could be a, a, a number of things. And for instance, maybe this child has a, a, a ear issue or ear problem, but it, it's an emergency situation. And we would think to ourselves, I can't believe that they're crying. I can't believe they're they're grieving over an ear problem with their infant when my child is over here. And his heart is not even formed or his lungs are not even formed to be compatible with life. He literally clings to life every day. And you're grieving over an inner ear problem. You're grieving over a deformed bone. And we learned that, yes, that grief was real to the extent of those parents and their life and their world. And that we were not to undermine it, undercut it. We could say, sure, that's silly. If you compare tragedies, that's not the point. The point is grief is real to the people that are experiencing it. And we learned that. Almost everybody in the Bible has wept at one time or another. And yes, as you know, what is hailed as the shortest verse in all of Scripture is. Not to dishearten you, but in the Greek, that's not the shortest verse, by the way. In real Scripture, but in our version, yes, Jesus wept. He wept alongside Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. It was a sad, sad moment. They were friends. They were family. 
Jesus understands these kind of sorrows as well. A verse that we will undoubtedly hear many times as we work our way up to the Easter season. Isaiah 53, 3, describing this man that we know of Jesus. Here is what scripture says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We know our grief. We know our grief every Sunday. Very seldom as we have opportunity to give praise first and then prayer requests. Very seldom do the praises outweigh the prayer requests. It is a testimony of the griefs of life. We have our issues. It's natural. It's to be expected. Ecclesiastes 3 even says there is a time to weep. There's a time to weep. It's unnatural not to weep. As a matter of fact, as you probably have experienced, tears are God's gift in the sense that they serve to cleanse our hearts and our souls. We grieve and we cry and we can express our pain and our hurt through the tears in our eyes. And it keeps the poisons from building up the bitterness, the bitterness from building up in our hearts. It's all the process of grief. But this is not the kind of grief and mourning that Jesus is talking about, the natural consequences of just being in this fallen world. Nor is he talking about the wrong kinds of grief. You see, we're so mixed up sometimes that we can actually take this thing called grief and apply it to wrong situations. We find that in the Bible, too, where people are just stricken with grief over the wrong things. I think of Amnon, one of David's sons. The Bible describes him in 2 Samuel 13, and he's just absolutely, he's bedridden. He doesn't want to function in life. He doesn't want to take another step because he is in tears over the fact he cannot get what he wants, and it's ruined his life. And all he can do is mourn, and the thing that he wants so bad is an incestuous relationship with his sister. And he can't get it. And so this is real grief and real tears. And then I think of King Ahab, who also, he is like he's having a hissy fit. He's in the bed. He refuses to eat. All he can do is cry. What has happened to this poor man? Well, his palace, being the king of Israel, his palace happens to overlook a particular vineyard called Nabal's Vineyard. And it's a really nice vineyard. It's probably nicer than maybe some of the other stuff that the king has. He wants it. And he is mourning, crying, refusing to eat. He is so torn up and sad that he cannot have it. By the way, both of those men eventually got what they want, wanted, wrong as it was, and they paid the price for it. Lust, mourning after things that we have no business wanting in the first place. Is that us? Do we do that sometimes? Life just as miserable. I want to cry. I want to stamp my feet. I don't want to eat. I don't want to go on because I can't have what I want. And we have no business wanting it in the first place. The Lord's not talking about that kind of mourning here. One of the worst examples in Scripture about the wrong kind of application of mourning was King David himself. His son's got it true. And that's when his own son Absalom decides that he wants the kingdom. And he thinks he's got a chance to take it and he revolts against his own father to get the king. He has his own army and his own people. But David loved his son Absalom. You know, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, the psalm. 
And he tells his commander, Joab, one of the mighty men of God, one of the mighty men that is a true commander and has won many victories. He says, go easy on my son. Don't hurt him. And then David catches word that his son has been killed in battle and he goes into mourning. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He just is wasting away. And his commander, Joab, saves him from literally losing the kingdom, though. They won the victory because he gives his men that risked their lives, that were courageous to uphold the king and kingdom and of the Lord. And he pays them no regard. There's not a single word of gratitude. Thanks for fighting for me. Thanks for risking your life for me. He's just in his bed crying over the loss of his son who rejected the kingdom and therefore rejected God. He's mourning over the loss of he who was evil Instead of rejoicing over the victory of those who did the right thing. And Joab said, if you think your kingdom is bad shape now, if you don't get off up out of that bed and address your men and address your people, you're going to lose it anyway. And he did get out of that bed and address them. Wise words from Commander Joab. So, yeah, there's lots of reasons to mourn, both good reasons and improper reasons. And we can learn from our times of sorrow and grief. Like the poem says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and nary a word, said she. But all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Yes, we can learn from our grief. That's not the kind of grief that Jesus is talking about. Not circumstances. As our first illustration drew our attention to, Jesus is talking about there's a necessity. There's something that has to happen with all of us in order for us to receive the blessedness of the kingdom, in order for us to enter into the kingdom, in order for us to live in the kingdom there's a mourning that needs to take place. And it's a mourning and a grieving over the devastating dimension of our own personal sin that is in us, that is a part of us. I think of Job in Job 42.6. And you know the book of Job and he wrestled back and forth and he was a very wealthy man. He didn't, wasn't sure why all this tragedy came upon him. He had it all and he wrestled with God and he wanted to assert his righteousness. But in the end, after seeing God, after talking with God and having a better perspective of who God is, he says, I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes. God, you've helped me see my heart. I thought I was a righteous man. I thought I was doing everything right. You helped me see my heart and I look in there and I can't stand it. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. So this word mourning, one of the nine different ways the Greeks used it. Which, which way was this word used? This is the word that is used to describe the great grief that comes from loss of life. It's not just a few sniffles. This is soul Wrenching, gut-wrenching grief when you have lost something that you absolutely dearly love. And this is the word that the Holy Spirit on the inspiration 
of Scripture gives to Matthew to use right here when he's penning this sermon that Jesus preached. It's the kind of grief that recognizes great loss, that recognizes death. What kind of death are we talking about? We're talking about the death to God because our sin separates us from God. We're talking about grieving over our own physical and spiritual death. Being able to see the consequences of that. And coming to grips with it. Because when we see God and how worthy He is of adoration and absolute surrender and worship, we see that that is not us. See, true Christianity often manifests itself in the things we laugh about and in the things we weep about, practically speaking. That's some. That's what our Christianity is manifested in. Many times we laugh about the things that we should be weeping about and we weep about the things that we should be laughing about. This is something that we should be weeping about if we understand the true nature of the impending judgment of God on our own sin and on our society. Isaiah twenty-two twelve through 4 says, In that day... The Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness, voluntary baldness, and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears, Isaiah says. And he quotes, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for. You until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. What is that scripture all about? God has called his people to a time of mourning, to a time of weeping over what? Their sin. You need to enter into this time where you're grieved over your thoughts and your actions. And what do they do? Let's let's have a party. Crank the grills up. Put the beer on ice. Forget about the sin. Let's party. And God says, no atoning forgiveness for you. The right response isn't to deny it like they did or ignore it. Let's pretend it's not here and just keep on being merry. And the right response is not to cover it up. The right response is not to confess it and say, oh, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I have it in me. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. The response is to confess it and to plead for mercy for the guilt of it. Kent Hughes also says it's been said that there is one thing worse than sin. Now, what can possibly be worse than sin? The denial of sin, which makes forgiveness Impossible. The saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin, for it is without grace. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. That's the cause of the morning. That Jesus calls for. How about the result. Of such mourning. 
Well, the result is comfort and joy, Jesus says. It's the greatest of days when the consolation of God and the comfort of God comes upon such a heart that has seen its sin and repented of it and confessed. And the divine smile, if you will, the spirit experiences the comfort of the divine favor and the divine smile of God. Happy is the man who confesses his sin. Happy is the man who repents. That's the comfort that Jesus is talking about. The comfort that comes in the forgiveness of God. I like what James says in 4, 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, he's saying, you know, to the unrepentant, today's laughter is tomorrow's sorrow. But to the repentant, today's sorrow is tomorrow's joy and laughter. And he's also saying, you got to get real. It's time to just stop and get real. And stop playing games. Don't blow it. It's time to get serious. That's the path to this blessedness that Jesus is talking about. The true happiness of the kingdom. And let me just tell you that only it is of all the people of this entire world. And there are a lot of people, a lot of different races, ages, personality types, you name it all. There are only one group of people that can understand what this experience of comfort feels like that Jesus is talking about. And it is those who have truly confessed and repented of their sin. It is only those people of all the people in the world that knows what it's feel like to be refreshed and approved by the God of heaven. Nobody else can have that experience, though there are many experiences to be had in this world. Only those knows about that storm. It's just like a storm, kind of like the one we had yesterday. You know, it's been wintertime. There's still dead leaves in the trees. There's dead leaves, deadness, branches falling off. And now the pollen is starting to come. It's kind of this awkward, yucky time. But around this time of year, the tempest comes. The storm comes. And the clouds go really dark. And you see it. You know it's coming. You're wondering how bad is it going to be. And it blows through. And oftentimes during this time of year, it's hard torrential downpours. And what happens afterwards? The sun comes out. The pollen's washed away. Oh, there may be some broken branches here and there because it was a hard storm. But now it's just this beautiful freshness that you would have never experienced without that storm. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he desires people to experience and know firsthand this joy, this comfort, the, the cleansing power that we sang about this morning of the blood of Christ that can cleanse our souls. And Romans, Paul says in Romans, even our guilty conscience can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And you, if you have repented, truly and sincerely know what that's like. And if you haven't, you don't. And you're missing out. And as James would say, stop laughing and giggling through life as if nothing's wrong. And draw near to God. And mourn over your sin. See, our sin invokes these kind of dreadful storms that come. Jesus is, is inviting us.
to mourn over that. And then joy, the freshness, the unspeakable comfort and joy. So blessed are the mourners, for they will immediately be comforted and they will continue to be so. The the Greek in there is the word for you will continue to feel the freshness of Christ's forgiving love. Something that we can walk in every day. And honestly, for believers, I know it's hard because as Christians, we still struggle with sin, but yet we can still go to the altar and repent. And so we're like in this tension all the time. Lord, I failed you as we were worshiping this morning. Gosh, I could hardly do it. Because of the, the, the failures in my life, the sin that I had here, I'm worshiping God. And, and I just thought, Lord, I'm, I, all I can do is repent. But it's the cleansing blood of Christ. It's that tension. And then then you're forgiven on the basis of Christ, not your feelings. You're forgiven on the basis of the promise of Christ. And you're lifted up as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and a child of God. And then you live like that. You blow it again and you get back up again. You're constantly feeling the freshness of the cross because the grace of God never runs out. It's an awkward place to be, but it's a joyous place to be. And I'd rather ride the altar to get to heaven than not get there at all. So it's a continued comfort. And it's a comfort from the Holy Spirit. The word for comfort is the word for Holy Spirit where Scripture uses paraclete. He's saying, I will come to you in my Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a divine reconciliation. It's a divine relationship where he comes alongside us, does life with us, helps us mourn, and then heals our broken hearts, helps us heal, and then gives us strong arms for the next battle that we will have to fight. It's this, I'm sticking with you kind of comfort. I'm with you now and forever. It's a divine companionship. A divine binding up of the wounds. So those are the results. And we've heard the cause. And lastly, what are some signs of one who might be truly mourning in this way? How do you know if this is you? Well, there are some indications that we can look at. And first of all, we would ask ourselves over the overarching question of, well, what's the, the, the condition of my heart towards sin? What do I really think about it? Is it no big deal? Am I very gracious or forgiving to myself over sin? Because it is sin and our view of sin that blocks the forgiveness of God because our hearts can grow hard. Or what the Old Testament would say, stiff-necked. A constant refusal of the promptings of the Holy Spirit to respond in a repented way that restores us in a relationship to God. And each time we resist, our hearts grow harder and harder. And then the Word of God comes, as Jesus says in His parable, but the ground of our hearts has grown so hard the, the seed just can't penetrate and take root. And all that beautiful grace of the Holy Word of God goes out and washes away very quickly. 
all that opportunity. So what might cause this kind of hard heart? John MacArthur suggests five things. First of all, very obviously, the love of sin. You know, if we, if we love our sin, we're not going to repent of it. It's that simple. It puts a freeze on the heart. Not going there, not doing that. I love my sin. Secondly, despair. What, is, what does he mean by despair? Despair says, well, I, I'm beyond help. I've failed too many times. I've gone too far. And God doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. So why repent? Why ask for forgiveness? I'm a hopeless case. And of course, this minimizes the cross of Christ. Minimizes the grace of God as if to say, you don't have enough grace for all the evil I've done, God. So I'm just going to keep on doing evil. Third, conceit. Well, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I got a few things in my life that could stand a little correction. It's not it's not perfect, but I I just don't see anything in there worth being penitent about. Uh, It's kind of just petty. Um, You know, I'm just maybe slightly sick, just just a sniffle, maybe, but not the full thing. And only a foolish doctor sends a man away. Telling him he just has a cold when he has a terminal disease. No matter how small it may be, our sin, it put Christ on the cross. Fourth presumption, kind of like conceit. Uh, Presumption says, well, sure, there's some weaknesses I have, but look at all these good things I have. Man, I, I am a good person. I faithfully attend church. I'm a good, faithful husband. I take care of my kids and provide for my family. I'm a very moral person. I obey the speed limit. I pay my tithe. I believe in God. And that's all I need to do. There's really nothing to grovel over because there's so much good in my life. And then lastly, the one that I know I'm familiar with, procrastination. I know, God, I know I need to repent. i got sin in my life. I know it needs to be dealt with, but not today. Maybe some other time. I got it in the back of my mind. I hadn't forgotten. I'll deal with it, but not today. And what does Hebrews 3 tell us? Today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Why? Because the more you put it off, the harder your heart gets. You know how hard hearts can get? impervious to the advances of God. And guess what? That convenient time that we have in the back of our mind that we're going to repent and get right with God, it never comes. That's why Scripture says don't fall for that. So love of sin, despair, conceit, presumption, and procrastination, these are signs that we do not have a heart that mourns. We're not in line to receive that comfort from the Holy Spirit. Well, what are a few signs of someone that is a mourner? Well, again, it's, it's easy and it's just the opposite. How do we look at sin? Does sin bother us? And to what degree? And if you look at our culture today, would you see a culture that is really, really bothered and troubled by sin? Or do you see a culture that is very, very permissive when it comes to? To sin and the commandments 
of God. Do you see a culture that is grieved and broken over these things? Or a culture that is accepting of these things? And then we look at our own hearts. What are we mourning over? Anything? Do we mourn over our personal sin first and foremost as we read the commandments of God and His expectations on our life? And then do we grieve over what's happening in our culture, what's happening to our world? Do we grieve over the broken hearts? Do we grieve over the brokenness that sin is causing in our, in our lives and the, and the lives of our loved ones? Does it hurt to watch it, to feel it, to see it? Are we mourning over this pollution that we are adding to our polluted world? And secondly, do we know the joy of forgiveness? You see, the joy of forgiveness is the result of a person that mourns. And so the person that mourns is also known as the purpose that is filled with the person that's filled with joy. The person that's being comforted because they've just come back from the cross. They've come back from that time of repentance where they battled it out with God, but received the gift of grace and the gift of mercy. A person that mourns is a person that is also known to be filled with joy. Lots of new days. God's mercies are new every day. So there's this happiness there as well. So as I close, do we acknowledge that there is nothing in us to commend us to God? Do we just get real? Have we come to that time where, you know, when I really think about it, when I stop playing games and I stop looking at things the way the world does and everybody tells me look at and I just look at a holy God and I know you're there because Romans tells me you're there and I know you're holy and I have nothing to give you. And then we come to that state and, and do we ache over the guilt of our sin before God and man? Does it just cause us to ache? Are we sick over ourselves in tears on the bed like we're used to when we don't get what we want? How about with sin? Do we throw a fit over our own sin? If this is us and we need to work on our state of mourning, if we're a believer, then I would just encourage us to be restored to the fellowship of Christ and mourn over our sin. Maybe sometime today, just make a list and give it to God. And if we are not believers, I encourage you to come to Christ now and He will give you the kingdom. And Jesus tells us a little bit of what that's like in that parable of the prodigal. Come to me, return to me, and I'll give you that ring. And I'll put that robe right back on you. And I'll put sandals on your feet. And we will feast together. And you will be comforted. God invites us to be a mourner to come with Him with a broken spirit. To reach out for the mercy and the grace of God. Let us take this gift. Let us take this gift that Jesus provides us through His atoning blood. For happy are the sad if their sadness is over their sin. May God bless the preaching of his word.